Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're going to keep the weirdness flowing between us with SST 220, the Dinosaur Jr. freak scene single. No surprise to anyone, we love Dino. We just had the Bug LP a few episodes back. Really interesting to dig deep into this single, though. Of course, it was a landmark single, as we mentioned during the Bug episode. But even better, Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Philip Reichenheim on the show. Yeah, so cool to have Philip on. Did the new Dinosaur Jr. documentary. And I know you've seen it. I haven't seen it. It's part of my Mojack Summer Vacation 2 watch list. But I know I'll I'll know I'll love it, and you loved it, so I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, man, it's good. Awesome. Before we get into some freak scene, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Sure, man. So I know, Ryan, I've mentioned before about um, Decibel Magazine and uh, how they every month they induct a different classic album into their Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, with the criteria being that every band member that participated on that recording has to also be alive and or willing to participate in you know the the interview for the for the article so right. you know some pretty famous albums have been excluded f- you know for that reason mm. or occasionally you know they'll mention in the article that this is this album is one we've been trying to get for years but one of the band members was was a holdout etc or they couldn't find one of them it's normally either extreme or classic metal that probably wouldn't interest you. Uh, but I've, as I've mentioned before, they've, they sometimes do stuff like outside of, you know, metal per se. Like they recently did Dead Kennedy's Frankenchrist. Ooh, um, I love that one. You've mentioned a few of the classic inductees from this magazine that are of interest to me. Yeah, well, I'm going to mention them again. So... Uh, Swans, Children of God, they also mm-hmm. did recently. Mm-hmm. Die Kreutzen, October File. Baroness's Red Album. Oh. Slint, Spiderland. Ooh. Uh, they actually did Ultra Mega OK. Oh, Soundgarden. Nice. nice. Tad's Eight Way Santa, Living Colors Vivid. Melvin's Stoner Witch. Yeah. Failure's Fantastic Planet. Floor's self titled album. Hey, I just mentioned Floor. Yeah. Unsane. Scattered, Smothered, and Covered. The Killing Joke self-titled, the Jesus Lizard Goat album. Uh, one that we've used on our show, St. Vitus Born Too Late. Mm-hmm. Caius Welcome to Sky Valley, the self-titled Bad Brains album. Quicksand Slip. Whoa. Uh, a Fave of Mine, Rollins Band, End of Silence. They've also, Ryan, released three books that collect some of these, but the books mainly focus on the, the metal side of things, so lo- not likely to be worth your while to pick any of those books up, but you might want to check them out. Mm -hmm. Anyways, the new issue has an extensive piece on the making of 1994's Face of Collapse album by Dazzling Killman. Ooh. So I assume you're a fan? Yep. Yep. I I think I probably should be a bigger fan than I am, but but obviously, yeah, I know them. They're good. Yeah, so there's some mentions of of SST and SST artists in the article for sure. Um, you know, the, in the sense that the, the band considered themselves a progressive punk band mm-hmm. in the vein sure. of, I think they say in the vein of black flag or the Minutemen. Although yeah. I, I wouldn't compare them 
necessarily to the Minutemen for sure. But yeah, they're more flag than Minutemen, I would say. Yeah, I won't spoil the article too much. You know, for people that might want to check it out, it's a great interview uh, for anyone who is a fan and a great primer for anyone who isn't. But my favorite part of it is they talk about recording it in Steve Albini's basement and how he gave them a discount for helping for them helping to assemble a shellac single in his living room. (laughs) So, so here's what they say about the single. I pretty sure you probably have this because I know you're a completist. They say they were rubber stamping covers and then painting them with root beer scented paint. Yeah. 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 I know. I know which series that would be. There are two that are very similar. Well, there you go. If you have one of those, Ryan, it was probably assembled by the dazzling Kilman. Nice. Uh, I guarantee you almost anyone listening to our show is either already into Dazzling Killmen or, or would be. Um, it the, the album was deluxe reissued not that long ago. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still available on, or, you know, or what the status of it is, but I believe it was the first ever release on Skin Graft, and I think they've pretty consistently kept it in print. So, yeah, it's probably still available. Their tour for this album that they talk about also in the article was opening for neurosis and sleep Oof. And, wow. and they were slated to, to tour overseas with zenny gave up but uh, which would have been the perfect bill but they they ended up splitting up before that could happen and while you're out there check out their first album dig out the switch because it it rules too so yeah i'm just looking reminding myself of those uh shellac singles if i were to guess because I was thinking, you know, there was a series. There were two in quick succession that came out around that time. The Rude Gesture and Uranus, both on, or Uranus, on Touch and Go. I'm pretty sure it's the Rude Gesture, a pictorial history single, that the the Dazzling Kilman would have been uh, painting with root beer scented paint. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if it still smells like root beer, you know, all these years later. Well, you know what I'm doing right after we're done recording. <laughs> All right, I'm going well, to go take a big whiff of the a Rude Gesture single. Okay, well, you can confirm on our first day back after our hiatus, like first thing, first spiel. Mark that down. <laughs> okay. Okay, so Ryan, I finally finished the, the Sex Pistols uh, biographical drama series, oh, Pistol. Oh, oh, goody, goody, goody. Yeah. So, you know, you have to take these for what they are and just chalk it up to entertainment. And it was honestly thoroughly entertaining. Yeah. You know, the stuff with Steve Jones and Chrissy Hind was a, was a cool plot line. I'm not sure how factual it is. Like, I, I know they definitely hooked up. They've talked about it. Oh, I know. I was like, wait a second. I've read Jonesy's book. I'm not sure Chrissy Hind was so pivotal. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. It was very well cast. Like, the guy who played Malcolm was just perfect casting. Uh, oh, Oh, dude, dude, I, when I was, <laughs> like, that's, that's Jojen, right, from Game of Thrones, same actor. Okay. And uh, I, I kind of feel like when they were casting, they just had people come in and say, okay, say the word assassin. <laughs> say the word assassin. And then they have guys coming in, assassin, assassin, assassin. And then he came in and went, assassin. <laughs> and, and then they're like, that's it, that's it. And then for Johnny Rotten, like, not the greatest guy, but perfect at saying the word moron. <laughs> and, and so they got 
they got some casting really, really well done on that one. Yeah, well, I mean, super challenging to play John Lydon, right? Like, I, I, you know, I feel like they did as good as good as they could have done. And when you consider the that the band, the actors played all the music with no overdubbing live. Yeah, it's great. I didn't think that they they could have done a bit more about Paul Cook. I thought kind of swept his story under the rug. Yeah. Which was too bad. But I mean, I know that wasn't kind of the, that wasn't really the focus. Yeah. I don't know. Some of those iconic moments that we've all seen hundreds of times, like the Bill Grundy incident were, I thought really well done. The actors playing the music was, I would rather have that than, than, you know, overdubbing. And they probably couldn't use the Sex Pistols music anyways. Even though, you know, this was sanctioned by Steve Jones and Paul Cook, who both worked on it uh, and consulted on it, obviously. Most people know John Lydon took them to court over it. But movies like that, where you actually have the actors playing the music or singing the music, are on another level. Like, just think of I Walk the Line. Yeah. And compare that against Great Balls of Fire. Like, give me a break. Yeah. You know, like most of our listeners, I... I'm sure I've read both of Lydon's books. It's been a while since I read No Blacks, No Irish, No Dogs, but like years actually. But I've read Steve's book, Glenn Matlock's book. I've watched The Filth and the Fury multiple times. Oh, yeah. Watched Sid and Nancy, you know, too many to count, and watched The Great Rock and Roll Swindle like hundreds of times, which, and again, that's been, you know, easily over 20 years since I've seen Long that. T- Long time ago. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, pretty well versed in, in Sex Pistols lore. And to me, this is just another great addition to the to the canon for, you know, f- kids in the future to to watch. I, I, I mean, I can I guess I can understand why some people wouldn't like it. But, you know, when I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm just as much a fan as the next person. And, you, you know, you just have to go with it for the fun of it. Like, that's what I thought too. And there's so much sex pistols lore out there that, you know, just Malcolm McLaren has muddied up yeah. with, you know, fact and fiction, right? So that like there are definitely parts of this TV show that don't seem like consistent with what you have consistently read or watched or understood elsewhere. But yeah, totally. Just go with it. It's yeah. a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And I agree with you, man. I hope there's, you know, a younger generation of assassins who come <laughs> in and just, you know, go for it, man. Well, it's not like people were watching a series like Chernobyl and opening up their history <laughs> books and like critiquing <laughs> the the liberties that they took, right? Yeah. So chill out. Yeah. I did like how they used words that you know i'm familiar with either as song lyrics or reading the books where it's just like oh dude that is so like so many of the malcolm mclaren Mm -hmm. phraseology and john lydon especially you've heard those i don't want to call them tropes but you know those phrases in interviews for years and then they use them in the show and it's just that makes it real almost you know the sid and nancy stuff too yeah and i love how they uh you know, they talk about how Jonesy was nicking a guitar, but then he w- he also got nicked when he was put in jail. <laughs> like they used for both 
uses, I guess, or whatever, and it was just perfect. Yeah, the guy playing Steve Jones was was really good too. Mm-hmm. That thick Cockney accent or whatever it is, you know. Oh, and there was a, another Game of Thrones actor in it too, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Arya Stark. What's her name? Maisie. She was um, that sex, uh, the sex store, Vivian's store, like one of their most famous Jordan. patrons. Jordan. Jordan, yeah. And like, I did not recognize her. No, neither did I. And Jordan yeah. actually passed away like just a few months ago. Recently, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, again, just going to the casting and how people really went into those roles. It was deadly. Yeah. Ryan, what do you have? I have got part two of We Can Be the New Wind. I thought I'd give you another 10. Oh, cool. Yeah. Now, I was thinking about this. I could go anywhere because the book is quite random, as we spoke about last time. And I could do a 10, you know, E-lettered bands. I could do one, like, there's so many bands mentioned in it. I could do a top 10 or even more than that for many of the letters in the alphabet. So mine is just totally random. Again, it mostly was chosen by, like, oh, yeah. Uh, when I was looking through my notes and, and uh, my stickies on the book, I'm like, that's one. I'll just, you know, I kind of just went randomly for the first ones that stood out. And a bit of a tie-in to last week's episode, too. Okay. Um, and again, basically, all I've got here are some discoveries and reminders of bands out of Alexandros Anisiadis' book, We Can Be the New Wind, which is awesome. And everyone should pick it up. It's a great It'll be a great summer read because it's like 900 pages long. So, um, number one, we've spoken about this band before on the show, Rhythm Pigs. Mm. Originally from Texas, relocated to San Francisco. Great, intricate, progressive, melodic, post-hardcore. I was really digging their self-titled and choke on this records, both on Mortem from 86 and 87. Love the Rhythm Pigs. Great reminder to, to dig into their catalog again. Hadn't listened to them for a long time. Uh, number two, Outcrowd. Not the Outcrowd. Outcrowd. This is Outcrowd from Maryland. Um, from around 1987, I was checking out their album, New Music Solution. Kind of a melodic, hardcore DC sound. Not surprising, uh, given where they're, where they're from. Kind of has a reggae and U2 vibe now and then, but but not too much. It's like just the right amount. It's great. Outcrowd. New Music Solution. Uh, that was a discovery for me. Uh, number three, Guadalcanal Diary. Yeah. Uh, you've probably heard of them. I've, I've been a fan for a long time. Marietta, Georgia, formed in 81. I was just uh, re-digging their first album, Walking in the Shadow of the Big Man, from DB Records, 84. It's a great record. They had a ton of releases on Elektra later on. Great indie, college rock, kind of turned into more of a roots rock sound here and there. Some great 12-string guitar vibes. Um, In a funny way, this time for the first time ever, while re-listening to their uh, some of their records anyways, uh, reminded me of one of my favorite, but kind of embarrassing sometimes, uh, Canadian bands, the Northern Pikes. Oh, yeah. I love I love like their first kind of everything up to she ain't pretty she just looks that way. <laughs> I I love everything, right? I just love it to death. And uh Guadalcanal Diary kind of remind me of my favorite moments of the Northern Pikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've kind of, you know, got lumped in with the with the Paisley scene. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Even though they're from, you know, the other side of the, the continent there. Yeah. All right. Number four, the wrong, not wrong, the wrong originally from Hawaii relocated to San Francisco. This was a discovery for me from 1986, their record on flux records, really solid pop punk at times, kind of green day screeching weasel early ish, but then also some really, really cool joy division and urinals vibes to their music. They were part of the San Francisco scene. It seems when I read through the chapter on them, um, but I had never heard of them, or at least it never really registered for me. And I've checked out their their record from 86, and it's cool. It's really cool. Great discovery. Uh, number five, After Words. Not afterwards, After Words. Their self-titled record on Samich Records from 89. A late 80s DC uh, sound from Atlanta, Georgia. Kind of got a bit of a dag nasty vibe. But really digging afterwards, that was a discovery for me. Very cool. Um, going back to an old fave, though, a good reminder, the Junk Monkeys. These guys are from uh, Detroit, late 80s. Kind of, for me, has always had a bit of an early Goo Goo Dolls, early Soul Asylum vibe. No surprise there. Their Firehouse and Soul Cakes records have uh, been faves of mine for a long time. Soul Cakes is on Metal Blade, just like the early Goo Goo Dolls, so no surprise that they have that similar type of vibe, but Junk Monkeys, like them. Here's a discovery for me, and they were around for a while, uh, but I, they had escaped me. Flag of Democracy. Mm -hmm. um, not Flag of Convenience, Flag of Democracy. I was digging their album 23. I think it's their second one from Buy Our Records, 1988. Trashy, AOD-style, snotty punk from Philadelphia. They've got tons of records. Looking forward to digging into Flag of Democracy. That was a new one. Not a new one, but an awesome, awesome reminder. I had completely forgotten about them. Foundation from Reston, Virginia. Both LPs were produced by Don Ziantara. This is like Revolution Summer, DC, I don't want to say proto-emo, but with like Milo Ackerman singing. At times, it's just killer, foundation. Okay. Um, here's a band that uh, I think I've mentioned to you before, way, way back, but uh, I, I, I came upon them in the book, and I was super pumped that they were included. Expando Brain. Hmm. Um, they're great, great album that I don't think many people know about. You should check it out. It's cheap. It's everywhere, it seems. Uh, called Mother of God. It's Expando Brain. Um from 1986 on Vacant Lot Records. This band could have been on Alternative Tentacles, almost. It kind of seems to me like in the mid-80s, late-80s. Has a real urinals, Mission of Burma, slash hardcore indie sound. I just love Expando Brain. And then finally, here's the tie-in to a previous episode where we had Tom Herbers on, because Tom produced uh, this record that I was getting into by The Contras, Ciphers in the Snow, 1987 on Whittier Records, Brent. Great Minneapolis garage punk with a replacements uh, sound to it. Kind of run Westy run sometimes too, but uh, just digging the Contras. I had to dig those uh, two records out. But the one I was really getting into this week is the Ciphers in the Snow record from Whittier Records. So... That's only in the last two episodes, 20 records of discoveries and reminders. There are, I'm not going to say dozens, I'm going to say 
hundreds of other bands in We Can Be the New Wind that people should check out. Right on, man. Yeah. And I'm going to try and finish that book during the Mojack uh, summer vacation. All right. Let's make the freak scene. History lesson, part one. All right. Like I said, we love Dino on the show. Uh, This is, I think, our fourth release that we're covering for Dinosaur Jr. We had SST-130, You're Living All Over Me, SST-152, Little Fury Things, where we had Mara Jasper on the show, artist for this era of Dinosaur Jr. And I've got uh, some nugs from Mara's uh, write-up on this single in a moment. We had SST-216, Bug, a few episodes back, and now here we are at SST-220 with the Freak Scene single, which is, you know, like I said, a landmark single in the American underground. And not just the American underground, one thing that struck me when I was reading up for this episode, it may not have seemed that way at the time, but it's sure when you read about it now, seems as though dinosaurs' influence in North America and in Europe seemed to happen like really quick and really and people just really caught on to this vibe and it just went everywhere for what we now know as, you know, grunge, indie, shoegaze, slacker, everything that I read about that just talks about the US and UK tours of this era and how influential they were. Yeah. Yeah, although we covered Bug First because of the SST catalog number, this single came out a month prior in September mm-hmm. of 88. And I like you're saying, I think it's pretty hard to overstate the impact this song in particular had on independent music. I hit up Brian Long who, you know, was in charge of servicing college and independent radio and this is what he told me about the Freak Scene single. He said, Freak Scene was an immediate first listen genius of a song that blew minds when it landed. The way I judged college radio impact wasn't about where a record charted on the CMJ and Rockpool charts. Rather, it was how long a record stayed on the charts and how long stations continued to play the hell out of a record. You're Living All Over Me had a long life. Consequently, there was a ton of anticipation for anything Dinosaur Jr. related. It was released a month before Bug. As was usual in the UK, Blast First was releasing this in front of their release of Bug in the UK, so SST did the same thing. Mm -hmm. It worked well as college radio was at peak influence in 1988 and the song hit with a nuclear impact. And he's not wrong. The single reached number four in the UK independent chart and stayed on the chart for 12, 12 weeks. Bug, the parent album, reached number one and spent 38 weeks on the chart. Yeah, when I was reading up on this, I was uh, looking through the Mojack stacks, and one thing that stuck out for me, as I mentioned um, a moment ago, I was reading uh, up in Everett True's book, yep. Live, Through, Live Through This, American Rock Music in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> there's a quote on the front here when we're talking about America and the UK there's a quote on the front of this book by Courtney Love it says Everett's the guy that runs England uh, but anyways on this single Everett said freak scene is the single that invented the slacker generation Jay plays guitar on it like he skis in Everett's book he talks a lot about how Jay Maskus likes to go skiing Yeah. again he says Jay plays guitar on it like he skis effortlessly yet fully in control. And that's pretty accurate, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I've read that one too. And then I found a few other ones. Stephen Thomas Erlewin of All Music 
says the masterpiece of the record, surprisingly catchy song encapsulating the appeal and pitfalls of indie rock within three minutes. Mm-hmm. And here's Jess Harville of Pitchfork. Freak Scene is probably indie rock's greatest guitar performance and the band's greatest pop song. Somehow finding room for psychedelic furs jangle, edge-style ascending harmonies, Eddie Van Halen in the drunk tank, pickled country, and the cherry on top in three and a half minutes without feeling at all cluttered. And I mean, this song has made, you know, so many lists. Of oh, yeah. The, the greatest indie rock songs of all time and, and those kinds of lists. Yeah. Even uh, Byron Coley's write-up in the Merge reissue of Bug where he's referencing Robert Pollard, it says, um, quote, as they rolled on, there was no lack of people who would second Pollard's sentiments, quote, and this is Robert Pollard. Freak Scene became one of the great college rock anthems of 88, a beautiful blend of confusion, neo-folky yearning, and guitar belligerence. The song still slays, but there's so much great stuff on Bug. One of my, and then he talks about you know all the other stuff that he likes on Bug. That it got me thinking about when we did the Bug episode. I don't think we we didn't slam the song Freak Scene. I think our point during that episode was it's a great song, but it's not our favorite song off of Bug. But now when you look at it as just a standalone single in this episode, the impact really settles in. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, you, no, nobody yelled at us on any of our social media. So I think we would have made it clear that we, we do like this song. It's just wasn't either of our favorite off of the bug album, but no. it, it's a great song. And yeah, when you listen to the single, you can see what a great a side it is for sure. Here's a cool piece, Ryan, I found uh, by this guy, Rob Hughes from 2016 on the louder sound website. And it's a, it's a long piece. So bear with me as I think it's all worth, you know, the, the whole thing's worth, worth hearing. Released in September 1988 as the lead single from Bug, their third album, Freak Scene was where everything peaked. It was the definitive alt-rock anthem. A three and a half minute barrage of sound that opened the door for grunge, while also finding room for not one but two face-melting guitar solos. But it also represented the nadir of the band's internal tumult, signaling the end of this incarnation of Dinosaur Jr. just as they made their breakthrough. Mm. Parent Bug album was recorded at Fort Apache North, the Boston studio run by engineers Paul Q. Coldery and Sean Slade, who would go on to work with the Pixies, Hole, and many more. Fort Apache was better than anywhere else we'd recorded, Mascus remembers today. It sounded better than the stuff we'd done before. But neither he nor Bar- Barlow remembered the sessions fondly. Jay was just so passionless in his whole approach to it, Barlow recalls. <laughs> <laughs> Bug was a bad time, Mascus adds. The band was falling apart. It reminds me of when I got to interview Ozzy Osbourne and was asking him about Sabotage. He hated that record because it reminded him of being in the studio with all these lawyers and having a really bad time. So much so that he couldn't listen to it anymore. Bug was kind of a similar thing. Compared to the more sprawling songs that made up the rest of the album, Freak Scene was more straightforward. Musically, its collision of melody and raw noise was partly indebted to Mascus's beloved Black Sabbath. But Barlow was initially unsure about the song's merits. Don't get me wrong, I love it, he says, but my first impression was, wow, Jay's aiming real low with this one. 
I usually wasn't critical of his songwriting as I kind of worshipped his ability, but it was very simple compared to these instrumental epics that he was coming up with. It was popular, concedes Mascus. It was probably about trying to deal with people or friends trying to communicate with me. It was kind of pointing out some weird relationship. The album marked the apex of Mascus's authoritarian approach in the studio. He insisted on scripting, scripting all the instrumental parts for each song, even telling Barlow and Murph how to play them. Freak Scene was one of the first songs we did like that, Barlow confirms. He had the whole thing down. These are the chords you're going to strum on bass, whereas before, I was always given more wiggle room in terms of coming up with my own parts. Mascus admits that it added to the fractious atmosphere. I thought it was the easiest way to spend the least amount of time together. Okay, Ryan, here he's, he's talking about the, the lyrics. A tale of a love-hate relationship caught in irresolvable flux. It could have been about the band itself. So fucked I can't believe it, croaked Mascus. If there's a way, I wish we'd see it. How could it work? Just can't conceive it. Oh, what a mess. It's just to leave it. Despite the internal strains, Freak Scene struck a chord with music fans looking for something different. Mainstream radio wouldn't touch it. Its success was fostered by word of mouth, a burgeoning underground fan base, and airplay on, on what few indie stations there were. It spent three months in the alternative rock chart. Freak Scene heralded a perceptible cultural shift. Barlow had already noted the Dinosaur Jr. influence on British bands like My Bloody Valentine, while Nirvana took the band's slacker aesthetic to the mainstream. The most overt example of its influence, according to Barlow, arrived in 1992. Paul Coldery and Sean Slade did radio's heads creep after we'd had we'd done bug, says the bassist. I remember hearing that and thinking they've picked up something from the Dinosaur Jr. session. In terms of how it was recorded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I wouldn't say Radiohead. Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm stopping myself mid-sentence to say that I'm not sure Radiohead sounds like Dinosaur Jr., but I don't know if Radiohead would have existed in that way without all of all of the track that Dinosaur Jr. laid for bands that preceded Radiohead in the UK. Yeah. Maybe that maybe that's how I'll put it. Yeah. I don't know their music well enough to to comment on that, but Well their first records are pretty much like, you know, alternative guitar rock, but then they really shifted gears two, three records in after OK Computer. Yeah. Uh, the article goes on Barlow was long gone by then, just months after Bug's release, Mascus and Murph told him the band had split. The next, the bassist heard they were touring Australia with his replacement. Barlow poured his scorn into his new project, Sebado. Songs like The Freed Pig were thinly veiled attacks on Mascus. Barlow has admitted to resorting to small-minded revenge tactics. I sued Jay, wrote songs about him, shit-talked him, any opportunity I got. After Mascus put Dinosaur Jr. on ice in 1997, the original trio eventually put aside past issues and reformed in 2005 and performed Bug live in its entirety. The whole act of playing the record over again on stage really redeemed it for me, says Barlow. I suddenly thought, fuck, it's a great record. I get it. Now I know why people love it. Mm. Yeah, very hard 
during all of that turmoil to appreciate it, I would say, you, only with hindsight. Yeah, for sure. Another fact, Ryan, I think that really helped push this single forward was the video they shot for Freak Scene. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm not sure if you've seen this before, but here's a, a cool piece from John Robb uh, called The Day Dinosaur Jr. Filmed the Video for Freak Scene in My Backyard. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Okay, and this is off the louderthanwar.com website. That's the only piece I could find other than one thing I'll read right after you, and the one thing I'll read right after you is not very good. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so here's John Robb. Way back in the late 80s, my band The Membranes were signed to Homestead Records in the USA. Yeah. We were label mates with bands like Sonic Youth, Big Black, and also Dinosaur Jr., and struck a friendship which was cemented with my day job writing about music for the Sounds music paper. We had toured America and met many of these people, and when Dinosaur Jr. came over to tour the UK to support Steve Albini's controversial-named post-Big Black project, Rape Man, we went over to see them play in Chester and then Leeds University. The Leeds gig was initially tense because of the demo outside by feminists angry at Steve Albini's band's new name, Rape Man. Musically, the night was amazing with Albini's terse, stripped-down music sounding like nothing else. And before them, Dino's incredibly loud fuzzbox attack filling the room with an avalanche of guitars and quicksilver melodies. The The next night, we went over to Chester to see them play again. Dinosaur had nowhere to stay, so we put them up in our house on Queenston Road in West Didsbury in Manchester. It was a shared house full of dolls that were painted up and heads swapped around and painted TVs in the garden and a constantly fluctuating flow of people sleeping on the floor. So a hairy American rock band passing through was not going to raise eyebrows. This was a real house full of day-glow mayhem. On the way back, the band complained of the lack of variation in British food, but they only wanted to eat sweets, so we had to go at to an all-night garage and buy Twix for them. (laughs) The band were great fun to hang out with, and we stayed up for a few nights talking rock and roll, and especially about their beloved oi music. Many hours were passed on the minutia of partisans, foreskins, and even early pre-Nazi screwdriver songs being discussed and watching our esoteric collection of videos. I don't know if I knew that it makes sense that they would have been into oi music for sure. I don't know if I'd ever heard that about the band Dino? before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not specifically oi, but hardcore. Yeah. And I could see them going into the oi vein. Yep. Yep. The band stayed for a couple days and Lou Barlow ran up a huge phone bill phoning his girlfriend back home in the States before they left. A week later, we got a call and the band were insisting that their video for Freak Scene was to be filmed in our garden and we were going to get paid for it. The group turned up and knocked off two videos, miming to the song in our back garden amongst the hand-painted gnomes and the yellow-coated plastic fishermen that had been nicked from a chip shop in Blackpool. The lush green of our garden and the psychedelic toys framed the band perfectly as they wore wacky glasses from our art room. Somehow it seemed perfect and scuzzy, and for years when it popped up on TV, people would remark on how much America looked like the UK (laughs) until we pointed into the garden and said it was actually there where it had got filmed. Yeah, 
that is definitely the the best piece. Now, did we find out who filmed it though? I still no, I, we still don't know, right? It's not listed anywhere, so I, I'm guessing it's not even known by by the band or whatever. But you know, as far as I can tell, the other video he's referring to, because he says two videos, um, would be probably No Bones, who we know was filmed by Zeke Fiddler. You mentioned that in the Bug episode. Yeah, it doesn't look like the, the same as the Freak Scene video, like. You know, there's some live footage, but it's really abstract, that one. Also, you know, like it looks more like a Sonic Youth video from this era. Yeah. And, you know, the only other videos were Little Fury Things, which I know we talked about in the You're Living All Over Me episode. And the only other one they shot from this period was Just Like Heaven. And Maura Jasper shot that one, so. Yeah. The only other info I could find about this video and I could only piece it together after reading that article, though, was it's in this book, uh, the Dinosaur Jr. book by Dinosaur Jr., the Rocket 88 book. Uh, there are tons and tons of anecdotes and photos of their UK tour for the Bug album, yeah. including photos of Jay and uh, the rest of the band at the Membranes house. Okay. And there are photos where you can see just... You know, all these, you're describing, you know, the dolls and stuff like that. There are photos of toys and dolls strung from the ceiling and just hanging there. Here's a quote from John Fettler, from, uh, who is touring with them, in, about this photo of Jay in the Membranes house with all these toys and artwork around him. Just looks like chaos. Um, quote, the living room of the Membranes house in Chester genuine punk rock living and a total blast yeah and it it does sound like they had a great time there and then here is the only piece only other piece of like direct information about that video in this book as far as i can tell and it's from murph there's a quote and it says it was like a whirlwind in the uk and it was crazy making the video for freak scene there with everyone throwing ideas into the pot for a song that I thought Jay had written about all three of us. Three freaks in a band. Yeah, the video is, you know, pure dinosaur, you know, with the doll's heads, the, that weird dude getting his head shaved. I'd like to know who that guy is. Probably just someone from the... the from the Membranes from the Punk Rock House, yeah. yeah. Jay just barely attempting to lip sync. <laughs> <laughs> Murph in his bitchin' leather jacket. Lou just staring at his feet with his hair covering his entire face the whole time. Yeah. Racking up a huge phone bill, phoning his girlfriend. Yeah, not much has <laughs> changed, probably. Okay, Ryan, so shifting gears a little bit, our guest this week, Philip Virus, a.k.a. Philip Reichenheim, cinematographer, director, writer, producer, editor, musician, and artist from West Berlin. As you'll hear him mention in the interview, he's also Jay's brother-in-law. Mm -hmm. Jay is married to Philip's sister, Louisa. Uh, he directed and shot much of the 2006 Live in the Middle East DVD of Dinosaur Jr. And, of course, his new documentary is Freak Scene, the story of Dinosaur Jr. So let's throw it over to Philip, and then we'll talk some more about the Freak Scene doc. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Philip Virus Reichenheim. Philip, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. That's nice. Okay, so I'm calling you in Berlin right now. Is that where you're from? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm born in West Berlin, 
you know, during the uh, when the war was still up in 1971. And so I'm a real Berliner, which is getting rare these days. Yeah. So I had this weird growing up with a wall and different soldiers, you know, like from different countries from uh, we lived in the French sector and there were American British sectors and the Russian, of course, from the former Eastern. When did you start getting into like video journalism? I think that's kind of how you got your start. For me, it all started with photography that uh, I, I, you know, I experimented with uh, cameras and from that point on, and my dad had a video camera already when I was like 12 or something. So I was, had access to video eight in the early eighties and I would film uh, myself. I found my oldest first short films at the age of 13. And my neighbor is a guy called Alec Empire. So he had to spend Atari Teenage Ride and we grew up together. Mm. And we were like, he had a punk band really in his teenage days. And I would film it already at the age of 14, 15 or something, I think. And that got me into at some point using uh, film cameras. And I started actually with doing music videos since the early 90s. In 93, I did my first uh, Atari Teenage Ride video and a short film called Civilization Virus. That's where my music video director named Philip Virus is from. Was kind of kind of a punk rock name, you know, Deleuze, Blade Runner, punk rock thing, you know, like when I, I took it, you know, like so. And it's kind of funny, uh, before we had the freak scene, the story of Dinosaur Junior film done, it was like we were done like 2019 with the edit and I met Jay, I showed him the film again and and I decided already before that I will be for this project Philip Reichenheim as a director. So that is basically the division between my name is Philip Virus is like a music video director with a kind of, you know, dadaistic approach in his work. And Philip Reichenheim is just a filmmaker or producer, you know, like more, less arty. Right. So when you started doing these music videos, it sounds like, you know, you just kind of fell into it in a way like most people often do. You had a video camera, you, you had access, you know, your friends with these bands or whatever. Uh, did you know what direction you wanted to go? Did you want to start getting into more uh, making videos or were you wanting to get into making documentaries or just everything? I think it was everything like in my head, you know, I would do... Like, as, as we already said, like, I would start take a one roll of uh, 30 meters film and shoot one video for Atari. On the other side, I would take one roll of film to film even Dinosaur Junior on tour in 1995 because I met Jay in 1993 at a wedding in New York. I was a big fan from day one, you know, in a way. And um, the dinosaur albums came out, I think like in 87 in Germany or 86. So a little bit delayed, but it was had a huge impact on me. So I would switch when I could for people I like, or I'm like 
familiar with, I would always do documentary uh, filming for Atari Teenage Ride as well. So that will be as well my next project. But let's maybe sure. <laughs> go that sometime else. Okay, so I was going to ask how you first met Jay. I, I thought maybe it was when he was on tour in, in Germany, but you met him at a wedding in New York. Yeah, it was funny. Like, like uh, I, as I said, I was really a big fan of Dinosaur Jr. already from day one. Met the album, sweet. There was really the soundtrack of my teenage days, one of the bands, for sure. Like, we would listen to a lot of guitar music from Dinosaur to Slayer, then hip-hop came. You know, and then my friend Alec came with all these weird digital punk he created himself, you know. So it was a really fruitful time for music and 80s, mid 90s. And I ran into Jay at this wedding and I was always a big fan. It was fantastic. He, he had a, like a like a cowboy hat, a purple suit. And as a gift, he brought a duck made out of stone. And that was hilarious. Like for me, I, I was like, wow, it's really Damascus. And my sister was really good friend or knowing him and uh, the same. Uh, and the manager was a friend of my sister and my other friend. So Jay was around and we clicked right away. We would like, I would do artworks for him in the 90s. Some solo acoustic album or i did the last dinosaur jr video in the uh, mid end 90s 97 uh, before he uh, stopped working with warner and throughout this time we became always we were good friends and clicking and having the same humor jay is a really funny man and then it happened that him and my sister became a couple and stayed together, have a child. And so he even became a family member. member. Uh, so when did you first start talking about making a documentary? I think like unconsciously I, I would take, I have a certain approach or I had that when I'm in a, in a club or when I'm watching music and I have a camera nearby, I would film it just to feed my video autism a little bit, you know, that I have something to do. And so I would take many chances and film even in the 90s, then in the 2000s when Jay was solo. I, I filmed a lot of his Jay Maskus uh, and the Fog with Mike Watt and the Stooges project with the Ashton brothers. I, I had the luck to be with them for a whole weekend in Belgium at an amazing festival. And so there were amazing possibilities. And in, I think when the band reunited in 2005, we got a job, me and my film partners got a job to uh, produce and direct uh, a reunion DVD with a live show. And we did bonus materials with like all their friends from Kim to Thirst, from Kevin Shields to uh, Mike Watt. And there I realized the potential of all these people who have one thing in common that they are all performing uh, quite a lot of amounts of volume, you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought it's an, an really fantastic and to dive deeper into that because I didn't know a lot, you know, like 
So all the band knowledge we gathered in the movie is really from research or from basically the interviews. So a lot of the interviews with people, like you mentioned, Henry Rollins, Bob Mould, etc., was that footage taken from that time, the Live in the Middle East stuff you were shooting, or is it some of it newer as well? Yeah, uh, with Henry, I had the luck. Bob Mould, for example, is shot like shot 2018. Henry, I had luck to meet on several occasions. One time, exactly what you said, right? Uh, early, I think, 2008 in Hamburg, he had one of his comedy shows, which I really like. And so that these interviews were kind of from that time, shortly after reunion, the band was still really uh, emotional about it. You know, Lou and Jay, they were like reacting. You could tell there's anger or pain involved or tears nearly, you know, like, so was as well the decision not to make interviews with them all together, you know, that they have, their chance to share their perception of the past without looking over the you know shoulder and having maybe a little some energetic you know like censorship somehow so i was trying to collect really honest non-attitude statements from all people you know I th I would say you achieved that. They're definitely all three of them are very candid. I would say about the you know the first breakup of the band and you know pretty honest. I think it seems like about what you know what caused it. Jay himself is you know has a a reputation for being a tough person to interview. Was it difficult to get him to open up to you? You know, Jay and me are so close and we're good friends and we can share anything as well like I know him since such a long time like longer uh, more than half of my life you know so uh, but and there we come it was tough for Shay even for me like it's really he just doesn't like it he doesn't like he calls it an abnormal exchange of information he just doesn't like a visual chit chat about music he, he likes when it's about his band it can be difficult and then often the journalists made the mistake that they would expect jay needs uh, some seconds or a moment too long for some people to answer so people get nervous and come with the next thing and then it gets really confusing because then he's like and you don't know what what happens you know so um it was for me even and i only had two times like a real interview session with him because of that he wasn't that easy about it and i don't blame him if you don't like it you don't like it so i had to kind of push him to do it and make sure that he is on board and not too annoyed or stuff and there was as well like a, you know at some point I could tell right like he's out in a way he's it's enough yep <laughs> well thank goodness for Emmett because uh, Murph really opens up in this documentary he's talked yeah. too about you know uh, his dis you know his dislike of interviews but he he was surprisingly candid in this amazing yeah yeah 
Yeah, like the band as well. Like, I mean, Lou is pretty good as a storyteller himself mm -hmm. and as a mood, uh, you know, temperature. Uh, and Murph really puts it perfectly, sums it up perfectly and so sensitive. And I like that, that the band has no narcissistic approach in their career. Like they're like, you could call them egocentric or whatever, but there it's not about, it's a weird, abstract, different cosmos of egos they were dealing with. Yeah. So, and it's all understandable, you know, and they were teenagers, you know, like, and then like her teenagers even. So it's all understandable what happened. And I'm always psyched that they really uh, went over their difficulties and, you know, kind of solved their conflicts and stayed uh, true to what they do best to play together because they are a great formation as a trio. Yeah, they I they clearly cracked the code of their personal difficulties. They I would say they've made their best albums in my opinion since since reforming. Yeah, it's it's just like really Yeah. And that really thrilling. Yeah, that's what really I would say that's the heart of your documentary is, you know, the the interpersonal relationships and and it's not overtly explained how they overcame those, but it's pretty it's pretty clear that they did. Yeah. You know, it's like as well, like for me it was like I wanted to do it, but I first had to find a vehicle to drive it, you know, and I thought, all right, we don't go typical, we we really put the the pearls in a row in a different way. And I I thought since they're so weird in a way, in a cool way, I think when Jay talks, it's always hilarious. You know, he has as well, even then, a good humor. And it's so, <laughs> it's awesome. So I thought it's good to have their inner relationships and friendships as the storyline. And I think like we really still had so much focus on the music, even though mm -hmm. I'm sometimes a little bit sad that we don't have more of the 90s Mike Johnson birds times, which was an important time as well. But for the story and for the whole energy um, during the edit, the decision was made and we didn't really get a hold of Mike Johnson personally. Mm -hmm. He was kind of, I made some efforts, but I never heard from him back. And then I kind of out of that had to stick to the concept to really stay with Jay, Lou and Murph as the red line, you know, of story. Right, right. And that's why maybe at some points, because like, I mean, I'm a fan of Jay's 90s time as well, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I didn't, I could have gone a little deeper into that. But while I did it, I, of course, tried it out. The original edits are like three and a half hours long yeah. of the film. And I read, you know, a movie on energy, a certain energy comes by itself. At some point, the movie has its own dynamics, you know, and it just from the focus and everything, it felt what I collected with, uh, uh, with Mike and Judge, it felt like a little bit like a stranger in it, in the whole rest of the work. So 
who knows, maybe this will be seen one day. I have no idea. But we stick to the Jay Lou and Murphy thing. Yeah. Well, I, it's not like you gloss over that era. I, you, you touch on it, I think, you know, yeah. to the de- degree that you should to, to tell a story, right? And ultimately, the the story is, you know, the the redemption story, if you want to call it that, of the original lineup, I would say. And that's that's a good story to tell. Yeah, thanks. A- any attempts to get anyone from SST, like Greg Ginn, even, to participate? You know, I had, I interviewed Daskadina once. Um, I had Mike, basically SST artists, or Mark Lanigan. Right. Uh, I had as well. Um, so with Greg Ginn, there was like from my end of the story, like when I heard what happened, there was like maybe my artistic empathy for the band was like that I didn't care too much at some point anymore about Gregan to ask him or not, you know? Yeah. So I wasn't kicked by the idea of trying to talk to him and, you know, kind of coming up with mistakes he might have done, you know? <laughs> I don't know. So I left that part out and I, I missed out where it, which was kind of sad that I never ran into Gerard Costner. Mm. That was like for me a little bit uh, unfortunate because there were efforts as well. I think I wrote him, but then I have the virus name. Maybe it lands in the spam. You never know. Then I didn't hear back. Then one time in 2016 on the 30th anniversary of Dinosaur, I missed out the he met the band and I was not in that moment uh, with them, Mm. which was sad as well. So he was like, there's some characters. I'm kind of sad that they're not in the film and that I would say Gerard Kosloy, my friend Evan Dando, we didn't put in the film. As I said, it had its own dynamics and I didn't have the fitting. Right. I had a very detailed part in the longer version about uh, Murph touring with lemon hats. Right, yeah. Because Murph is saying that uh, the touring with lemon hats one year was like more happening than Dinosaur in the whole career, uh, like from terms of sex, drugs and rock and roll, of course. But like, so some people I'm sad that they're not in the film, but then we uh, I kind of resolved it because we did a blu-ray release for germany Ah, only like limited and we made like really a lot of bonus materials and i added another 10 minutes of excerpts from the interviews with everybody and for example i swear lee ronaldo of sonic youth he supplied me with this all these amazing footage you know all these amazing photos from so many people contributing and being cool about, you know, like letting us use it. I, I was really blessed in that. So Lee was, Lee Ronaldo was one of the characters I didn't have in, I had them in the raw edit many times in, but somehow like really somehow it gets out. And Lanigan, Mark Lanigan, that was said, like, uh, I finished uh, all the bonus material, it ends with Mark, 
saying Jamascus is God and he laughs in this unique way, like his voice and he's in a church. It's really awesome. I'm a big Mark Lanigan fan and I would always meet him in Berlin and would film him or inter like hang out. And so, and four days later I heard that he passed away, which was really sad. So there's always, you know, you can't put any, you, there will be maybe always somebody uh, being missed in it. Yeah. But uh, at the end, it, there's something, and I try, there will be a Blu-ray release for the US, as I heard, mm-hmm. and I will work hard on that one to maybe <laughs> come with all the things, to put all the things in, you know, when I had the feeling they should be in, you know, yeah. like maybe that's the next well, sooner or later, you just have to get the thing out, I'm sure, right? Like, it, I'm sure it can turn into a thing where you're just endlessly working on it, trying to... But we, we are, like, I'm kind of done with it, you yeah. know, because <laughs> since we, for me, the big work was, you know, we made the, uh, the film in Germany throughout fundings from German artist government funds and, like, really small budget, you know, like, basically... Uh, nothing but enough to do a post-production there's the plan uh, to um, re- release a blu-ray with really amazing special bonus materials and i hope to put like really a lot of stuff on i uh, didn't had the chance or to leave it in so uh, another thing is we were talking about uh, if it's an not stopping project you know, right, right, what right, for yeah. me is funny, I thought when we were in 2020 done, I thought all will is ready that it just goes out in the world. You know, I didn't make any thoughts about world distributions, all the festival stuff, you know. So I realized, oh, my God, and I'm with that maybe a little control freak because I'm a DIY person my whole life. You know, I'm produced, I'm autodidact, even though... I taught at universities, gave classes when I wasn't studying film. And so I thought, okay, fuck it. We, we just find the right partners ourselves. So me and my Cologne partners, Rapid Eye Movies and uh, Jay uh, gave me, we had full freedom to, you know, to find, the right people so and that's when we found in England really great people of Monroe Films it had a cinema theatrical release in the UK it had a theatrical release in Japan through King Records last March they did an outstanding job with the coolest merch ever you know like they sent us all of the sudden these great uh, baseball caps and there's even like uh, purple pullovers with the film logo and poster on it and like really creative and at the end we found what we were looking for the whole time we partnered up with amazing indie world distribution utopia uh, run by Robert Schwarzman the brother of the actor Jonathan Schwarzman and their team is so like really cool they have an amazing taste they put out the x-ray specs 
documentary recently, Jane Birkin uh, documentary, uh, Birkin's daughter, Charlotte did. And so it felt really good to join a team which is really passionate about the cineastic world and not just, you know, fast food filming. Right. And they, tr uh, and we had last, like, basically uh, two weeks ago, I'm just back two weeks ago from the States and our US release, which went really well. Uh, last week or like 10 days ago, we were on number six of the independent movie charts in the US with the film theatrical and on Apple TV plus number two in the doc store. Oh, right so on. it's really nice to see especially American people uh, diving into the dino cosmos and checking it out. And I think, or we, I hope that we get as well uh, new people, you know, like mm -hmm. kids, I only can say if I would see it, this kind of thing as a kid, I would have freaked out I know. Time. <laughs> like so much. There's like all these amazing music, then this weirdness, like then all different kind of genres of guitar. And so I hope that we cross uh, open genera other generations as well with the film just to you know, open up minds for more volume and more punk and, you know, a certain attitude which is getting lost more and more, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the same approach visually, you know. I'm a filmmaker, music video director. I did many artworks as well in photography or installations for exhibitions. And for me, the film was as well a perfect scenario to you know, to have fitting surfaces for the decades, you know, and have a certain, yeah, like a certain wall of an authentic wall, you know, authentic look for the whole film. Because it starts in the 80s, there's certain uh, uh, video cameras were there, and we were happy with all this, what I mentioned before, that we were supported by many people sharing their archives with us. And so they were like from all years, like the weirdest from high eight to film, from photos to just cover artworks and all with this dinosaur junior create creative energy somehow. And that was really exciting for me. Okay, I wanted to ask about your current band, Wild Style Lion. Is it a current band? Or are you still doing doing music? Uh, it's kind of funny. Like uh, the band is a project. I love electric guitars, of course. And like I had like um, we released an album in 2016, I think was the time. And um, it was with a friend of Berlin. And we had like as well, like really nice guests like Kim Gordon yep. and uh, people and I did vi uh, visuals, uh, two videos for the videos ended or this one song with Kim ended up being in a really cool uh, independent movie from Germany, kind of gothic about a weird night creature. Hmm. And um, I'm kind of still doing it. So we had only one album and two EPs out. And 
I was just too busy with with the filming and my band. Then one band member uh, went different ways. So we were first the trio, then our uh, other producer left, and then we were only two. And then we would be even support band from Dinosaur Junior. So the, some footage is from that White Star Line to a support as a support from Dinosaur. And it was crazy, like, to open up for Dino fans. And we actually did an okay job. We never got booed or anything. <laughs> like, people liked it, especially in the UK. We played in front of 2,000 people, which was, like, wow. really crazy. Yeah. And the band is, like, basically, if people always ask me how, whom you would compare to, I would always say, like, a little bit like Primus Scream, because we have as well electronic Right. So uh, we have instrumentals, so it's a two-piece band at the moment with with visuals and full music and electric guitar. So I play live electric guitar and uh, pedals, of course. I use wah-wahs and distortion. And my friend Khan is like from the elect 90s electronica time, uh, well-known uh, artist. His name is Khan of Finland. He had even record labels, Temple Records from New York in the 90s. And he would work with Force Inc. and Mir Plateau, which is a really cult electronic label from Germany uh, from the 90s, where my friend Alec Empire as well uh, was signed. Really the most innovative. It's still so modern <laughs> that it's probably still 20 years ahead with everything. It's right. insane. This label, Force Inc., with electronic music and techno is just like really ahead of its time always. So we were duo having fun doing like some live shows. And then the last show we had the day before the Berlin lockdown as a, you know, as a fun thing, our friend is, was married to uh, Marky Smith and was part of the band The Fall. And she moved back to Berlin and she had this like amazing party night uh, series where she would have like, you know, like kind of an underground feeling, which is not so much existing anymore. Right. Like the word underground is completely gone. It was such a word in my days and like I'm not using it anymore, but it has a feeling like that, you know, like when stuff is new, innovative, avant-gardistic and with weird energies or all energies emotionally or musically are possible. And I'm coming from, I, I like all kinds of music, but I have, a, I like loud, noisy stuff. So I like frequencies, which could be the tornado like or hurricane like it's amazing. Like, yeah. so I even like Mertzbo or mm -hmm. Slayer or Doom. What are you working on next? You meant I, I believe you mentioned you're going to be doing an Atari Teenage Riot documentary. Is that is that what you're planning next? Yeah, yeah. That uh, I so basically I would film the band Atari like really since day one right. myself, and then in 2001, a week before the 9/11, uh, the one Carl, MC Carl Craig commits suicide. And then there was like really energetic blank vacuum. So basically the whole film was 
as a documentary was shot and we supposed to, there was the thought and the option to make the movie already in 2002 or 2001, but it didn't happen. And of course, now looking back, it makes total sense. Everybody was like really sad about it and just the energy was felt like imploded and everybody was kind of as well exhausted from the the whole story and from everything you know so it was like that and i just did i did another documentary after that time uh, to learn more about the proper documentary films and that was a um, uh, where I joined forces with a really good friend photographer, Miron Zofnia, who is a real extreme photographer, like world class. He's like like mixture of VG. He would take pictures of really all outsiders of our society. And so he would do a movie about Werner Herzog's actor Bruno Schleinstein, Bruno S., who was starring in Kaspar Hauser and Strossek. So we made a heartbreaking movie about Bruno because he survived Nazi experiments where Nazis experimented with his brain because he was like for Nazi uh, uh, race and all these six theories. And he, he was in the euthanasia program where handicapped or how uh, uh, disadvantaged people would send to concentration camps. So we made this documentary about him and that was really for me as well a new experience, even though I did more music videos. So I, I just went different ways. And then at some point the dino thing happened and uh, um, I, I knew already that Right after this, the Atari thing will happen. So I talked already with Alec Empire about it and the working title so far is Riot Zone. Or Digital Hardcore, we are we're thinking, we'll, we'll see like it's that. Okay. Or only Atari Teenage Riot could work as well. So it's like really, <laughs> if I would turn the camera here, there's one big box with hard disks. <laughs> and there's everything in it because it took a year to digitize everything. Uh, yeah. So I had hundreds of tapes, like really from DV to Hi8 to DV Cam, Beta, uh, film, digitized. It's really exciting. And while it got digitized, I had a, like the screen, like a preview monitor always on. And I, that I can always see what's happening while I was working on other stuff. What is great, not only that the band has like a really crazy story, like really crazy story. And like as their music, wait, there's this weird light here. No, it doesn't matter. Um, as their music, it's uh, extremist characters in a way. Like they were awesome. And Alec is like really, an old, really basically the person I know the longest out of my, you know, old friends and... We were long-time collaborators, and uh, it's crazy what they basically started as a band getting signed with electronic music in the UK in '92. They uh, the but they 
supposed to be like all of a sudden like this pop act and they hated it and took the advance, escaped and made their own company in London. And uh, that became Digital Hardcore, the label. And from 93 on, I was extremely involved with like my music videos and all my cover artworks. I did as well all photography. So basically every picture from the early 90s till the 2000s nearly came for me. I think I didn't do two videos only. All the other videos are done by me. Wow. And they got signed then my sister was already living in the UK, uh, in the US and she would know all these people. So we were friends with like really the New York music scene, my sister and me. And I met all these people and then uh, we handed over uh, Atari album to the Beastie Boys and they totally got into it, signed it for Grand Royal and then Atari became really big in the States and we were touring, uh, I was on that tour as well, documenting it uh, with Rage Against the Machine and Wu-Tang Clan and Atari Teenage Ride as a support act. Wow. That was really amazing and in Japan and UK and there were conflicts in the band and the MC Carl here was suffering from psychosis and it got got more and more crazy and sad and at some, some point uh, he passed away and everybody was really like left speechless mm-hmm. and, and for the band Atari Teenage Riot it took a decade to recover from that as well and I, I like reunited but we've not reunited but he formed a new Atari Teenage right at some point and they're still doing stuff playing festivals doing music and it's like it's an interesting band like from so many points of views and from my perspective it will be an extreme cool inside look of the whole 90s crazy berlin all the stuff people talk about i was there and had a camera on so it will be exciting i'm picturing you having a very difficult time keeping that that one to a tight 90 minutes (laughs) yeah but you know it's I will. <laughs> I, I think I will. Because it's like really, it's as well, like something can get a few too long. I give always all support to give music and pictures space and content. But uh, I found out, I would never thought that the dinosaur film will be only 82 minutes. So, yeah. but I like it because like, it really has the essentials and the energy in it. You know, you don't, it's a band and a band has when they're successful so many gigs and you cannot please everybody anyway. Yeah. So I think for format, a functioning documentary format, 90 minutes is okay. So I, I might stick to that. I would think. Yeah. Well, your documentary is excellent and uh, I hope everyone gets a chance to see it and, and thank you for making it. Where can people go to learn more about you or to, to see the, the film? Uh, the Freaks in the Story of Dinosaur Jr. is out in the U.S. 
you can watch it and rent it on Amazon. You can uh, watch it, of course, in Apple TV, iTunes, Voodoo, Google Play. They all have streaming options. And for me, the most important, of course, is the cinematic output. And you just go on the webpage freakscenemovie.com and there's all US infos represented by our partners Utopia who do an amazing job and who are really awesome. So you can be sure, I think they made it like if you type in where you are, it shows you right away where the next screenings are. Right on. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Philip. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye, Brian. Bye. Awesome. So cool to have Philip on, you know, the freak scene documentary maker on the freak scene single episode. Awesome. What a tie-in, hey? <laughs> yeah, what a tie-in. Nice, nice move. And totally, totally just gets me primed for watching uh, the documentary on my Mojack summer vacation. Cannot wait. Hey, uh, here's a few reviews to get you even more primed, Ryan. This is from The Guardian. They give it four out of five stars. They said, this warm-hearted profile of the U.S. grunge rockers doubles as a poignant rumination on friendship and personal growth, but gets its heft from the unpolished performance footage. Mm. Here's Alex Hudson from Exclaim. Dinosaur Jr. influenced a generation of alternative bands with their noisy jams and melodic talents, and Freak Scene offers a very comprehensive overview of their career. The archival work is very thorough, with director Philip Reichenheim digging up a huge amount of early performance clips and old interviews. Freak Scene has a rough and ready punk aesthetic, with the grab bag of clips resulting in wild changes in resolution and aspect ratio. Yeah, I got that just from your discussion with Philip in that, you know, the care and attention and the vision that Philip had. You know, there are documentaries. And then there are documentary films. Yeah. This sounds like a documentary film. Yeah. Oh, it's also, you know, a little bit arty too, which yeah. I which I love. Oh, me too. You know, uh, here's from the NME, four out of five stars. An 82-minute crash course in the sprawling history of Dinosaur Jr. as told by the band and their peers. Uh, as far as, like, the interview with Philip, my favorite part is where he, he says... Jay refers to being interviewed as an abnormal exchange of information. That's true. <laughs> uh, check out Philip's band, Wild Style Lion. Kind of experimental, electronic, uh, dark, somewhat industrial sounding. Their self-titled album from 2015 is super cool. Um, there's a few tracks on there featuring Kim Gordon on vocals that I had no idea existed, actually. On the tree. For two reasons. Yep. Uh, Philip did the video for Almost Ready from their comeback album, Beyond. Uh, and that's super excellent. And also he did I'm Insane in 1997 from Hand It Over, which oh, both nice. Philip and his sister Louisa are in. They're both in the video. Cool. Uh, very cool that he has this history with Alec Empire and Atari Teenage Riot. I'm not super up on that band, but just based on what little I know and what he said, I'm sure there's an amazing story in there. Oh, yeah. As far as the documentary goes, the Free Scene Doc, I loved it. I've seen a, you know, a little bit of griping online about Jay's demeanor or whatever. 
Oh, yeah, yeah like <laughs> he's not a very engaging person. <laughs> if you're enough of a fan of Dinosaur Jr. that you'd watch this documentary, like what did you expect? <laughs> I know. It's kind of what we all love about the guy in the first place, you know what I mean? Or at least we understand that that is... That's who he, it's not an act. He's no. not putting it on, right? And if you if you want Jay Mascus all of a sudden, after all this time and after all that you know about him in this documentary to be like, hey guys, you know, yeah. it's me, Jay. <laughs> you know, give your head a shake. It's like going to see Dinosaur Jr. live and complaining that Jay wasn't, uh, wasn't all like, good night, Cleveland, or whatever. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of <laughs> stage banter from Dinosaur Jr. Yeah. What a letdown. Yeah. Uh, regarding the 90s era, you know, getting glossed over, because that's another thing, you know, that a few people have complained about, and Philip talked about it too. I mean, I appreciate an hour and a half long documentary. I, I really do think he balanced it out well and told a compelling story, and there's lots of great footage. Some documentaries, to me, suffer from too many talking heads and and too, too long, you know, trying yeah. to go over every every detail so uh you know as far as his famous friends go like rollins is in it bob mold megan and maura jasper thurston kim who's cool as ever uh byron coley frank black etc etc i don't want to give too much away uh but i thought it was neat when uh jay talked about his love of drumming and that's why he uses so many pedals he's trying to create the dynamics that he can create on drums. Mm -hmm. Jay in the documentary really cites the You're Living All Over Me tour is when things really started to go sour internally. That breakdown of the van where they're living out of a hotel room for like a week in some small town. Jay just talks about they're just sitting in the in the hotel room and he's just tearing Lou's life apart. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well... That'd be a hard week for the best of friends, much yeah. less where Dinosaur Jr. was at. Yeah. Some of the stuff we talked about, you know, in the bug episode with Lou sabotaging the music on stage, there's some mm -hmm. actual footage of them getting into a, a shoving match on stage. Yeah. Lou goes, I was becoming a negative force in the band. But here's an actual quote I, I pulled out of Henry on the Freak Scene single. Henry Rollins, he goes, the single was everywhere. John Peel liked it. The BBC liked it. You'd load into clubs and it was playing. Every record store had it up. It's just one of those records where everyone went, I like that, myself, mm -hmm. in, myself included. Yep, true. Let's talk about the single, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. All right, Brent, let me hit you with uh, a Spaceman spiel to start off the freak scene. All right. Okay, so here we go. Out of the SST catalog, Michael Whitaker. Dinosaur Jr. freak scene. Dinosaur Jr. offers up the feedback, soaked howl of freak scene with the groovin' non-LP B-side blast of Keep the Glove, bringing a feast of soulful summertime flavor to your speakers. Jay, Lou, and Murph let the sunshine in any time of the year. SST 220, 7-inch, cassette, and 3-inch CD. It was also, though, released on CD single. And the 7-inch came out in black, red, gray, clear, purple, and blue eventually. Yeah. 
And as mentioned, it came out simultaneously on Blast First in the UK. And it was eventually reissued in 05 by Sweet Nothing Records with Bulbs of Passion as a B-side, which is weird. Um, but it has some great Maura Jasper artwork on that 2005 version. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, around the 2541 era, we were talking about how, you know, SST was maybe having some financial problems around this time. Maybe just speculating, you know, with the whole negative land thing and uh, etc. But I have to think, you know, Bug and this single maybe helped. Must helped. have given them some some cash. Yeah, oh, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, you'd think. As far as the song "Freak" scene goes, I don't actually have too much to add that hasn't already been said about the song. It's a undoubtedly a classic. Yeah, this listen, I really zeroed in on Murph and the toms, knowing that Jay would have said, you know, do it like this, but the galloping toms, you know, it just really makes the song. The layers of acoustic guitars, and of course, yet another classic Jay Maskus scorching, fret-melting guitar solo. It just is the, you know, the perfect song for this era. Yeah, on that part where he goes down to the toms in between the verses, I like when they do it live, when Jay hits the flanger during that part. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But I mean, like, it's funny when you hear about them in the studio and how they weren't into it and everything was just like kind of thrown together. That sounds really deliberate and it totally makes the song. Yeah. Here's something that's interesting to me. There's no chorus on this song. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's not weird, but I find it weird that this would be the single that people would gravitate to because, you know, people are generally, you know, more attracted to classic song structures, I would say. Yeah, I think just the phrase freak scene is like the chorus yeah. almost in this song, right? My my single, though, has got like all the swear words in it. Well, I'm not sure what all formats the censored version was released on, but I found a video on YouTube taken from the blast first CD single for just like heaven that has the, that, that has the, the censored version on it. It goes, so I can't believe no. it. No, it what says it, it's re they re-recorded it. They, really? Yeah. Jay did a different vocal. It says for that part, he goes, uh, so whack. I can't believe it. Oh, I never want to hear that. Yeah. I've never heard it. I never want to hear it. And then, I, always, and, I only just have my single. Yeah, and then the other one, he says, don't let me freak now, will you? It really, really does not have the same impact without the effers in there. But it, it's worth hearing just to hear Jay say so whack. I, I'm not sure how much that would have even have been played, you know, buried on the CD single of the UK version of a completely unrelated song. Yeah, yeah. It might be on other versions, but that's the only one I could find. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And then flipping it over, we've got Keep the Glove. Right off the bat, Ryan, we've got another Hey Babe. Yeah, exactly. Lots of babes on this record. Yeah. Up the, upping the babe count by one more. <laughs> <laughs> I really like this song. It's, you know, a little too, I don't know, lilting or something, for lack of a better term, to th I think, to fit on Bug. I, like, it's perfect as a B-side for me. Yeah. I, I don't think it would have would have fit on Bug. Pretty killer, noisy solo section at the end. Like, I really like the production with all that reverb. But again, on this song, the toms 
are front and center. I just realized, you know, how much Tom action Murph has got going on on this record. The other thing on this track that stuck out for me listening to it on the single here is the falsetto vocals, falsetto background vocals that really become a signature Dinosaur Jr. thing. But oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is the first occasion of it, but it, it stuck out and I was like, oh, yeah, that's another unique thing that Dinosaur Jr., you know, they may not have been the first, but it, I bet you a lot of people picked it up from Dinosaur Jr. Well, yeah, I think probably Jay picked it up from Neil Young, so. <laughs> yeah, right. We got more of that classic Maura Jasper artwork, closer in style to what we saw on, you know, You're Living All Over Me or what she did on the Repulsion single on Homestead. It's yeah. un- uncredited on the sleeve. In fact, the sleeve's pretty sparse as far as any credits go. Not, you know, no band credits or anything like that, but I guess that's pretty normal for a single. Yeah. Uh, there is a quote out of that write-up that Mara did from the Dinosaur Jr. Visitors box set on Numero Records. Here's what Mara said about the Freak Scene single. It's not much, but more about the technique rather than the actual artwork. Here's Mara. Suddenly, everything became much more serious. Dinosaur was getting attention and playing more shows. I threw myself into my work and spent long hours in the printmaking studio at school. For months, I struggled with bouts of depression, and it was during this time that my figurative work became more narrative and personal. I made intaglio prints, which involves etching into flat copper plates with a sharp point. No two prints were alike but they all had a primitive, scratchy look to them. Between 85 and 87, I made images using the intaglio technique and generated a lot of sketched studies. Figures with bulbous, branch-like hands and gigantic heads were inspired by real people and events in my life, but tinged with emotion and somewhat surreal. From these prints and studies, I developed the images used for SSTs You're Living All Over Me, and The Freak Scene 7-Inch. Sweet. Brent, before we go to the ballot result, I want to sneak in one more tasty dino nug from the Mojack stacks that I pulled out. And uh, I don't go to this book very often because it's pretty mersh from in the 90s. It's Rolling Stone's Alta Rockarama (laughs) book. Do you know this one? No. I know the type of book, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this one came out in 1996, Rolling Stone Press, totally just cashing in on the alternative rock whatever in 1996. There is some good stuff in here, though. Don't get me wrong. Um, And there is mention of Dinosaur Jr. throughout. But here's my favorite Dinosaur Jr. related piece from Rolling Stone's Alta Rockarama book. And it is Jay Maskus's recipe for toasted cheese sandwiches. <laughs> Are you ready? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Am okay, I ever. We, okay, here we go. So write this down. You're going to want to make this for lunch. Okay, it says here, Jay Maskus's recipe for toasted cheese sandwiches. Jay Maskus is the idol of millions as leader of Dinosaur Jr. You will need 12 slices of stale bread, four to six thin slices of processed cheese, Softened butter or margarine. Spread bread slices with butter. Place cheese slice between two slices of stale bread with buttered side facing out. Toast in toaster until golden brown, about three to four minutes. 
You may make variations of this sandwich by adding tomato slices or bacon strips between the two slices of bread. Enjoy. <laughs> Did you know that Jay was such a good cook? No, I didn't. Yeah. A real connoisseur as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's just like French toast, right? Stale bread is the key. Yeah. Apparently. Okay. <laughs> no, anyway. dead, no dead wax on the single. No dead wax on the single, no. Mm. All right, well, as if we have to even do this, but let's do the ballot result. Ballot result. All right, man, should we do it? Three, two, one. Yeah. Freak scene? Oh, well, I was going to say keep the glove, but sure. What? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, man. Yeah. Don't be such a freak. Yeah. Hey, thanks to John Robb for the great piece on, on the Freak Scene video, and especially thanks to Philip Reichenheim for his amazing documentary and for being on our show. Yeah. You know what I'm going to do is listen to some membranes this afternoon. Great reminder to listen to their membranes, hey? Yeah, yeah. And Ryan, also thanks to all of our listeners and to all of our guests that we've had in the first half of 2022. Uh, like we've mentioned a number of times, we're taking a bit of time off this summer but we'll be back in the fall so wishing all of our listeners an amazing summer yeah man catch you all on the flippity flop <laughs> hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content if you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.